In recent months, our minds have been very unfortunately flooded with thoughts of war. We look to the east and we see a a terrifying war unfolding in the eastern part of Europe, especially in Ukraine, with increasing casualties and mounting tensions each and every day. And then we look around us and we see a society that's at war with itself. Increasingly, we find that our communities, our families, our friends are at odds with one another over politics, culture, economics, and so on. Tempers are flaring. Situations are escalating. And then we look inward and we see a war within ourselves. We find our own bodies are betraying us with age and disease. Our minds, as we get older, grow dull and forgetful. Sleep begins to lose its restlessness. Food doesn't have the same savor it once did. We're at the mercy of time. And if that isn't enough to to depress us and to beat us all down, then here recently, when we've come to church on Sundays, we've also been talking about this war taking place between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. Yahweh and the gods of self. And so we've been surrounded on every side by wars and rumors of wars. And no amount of busy work or amusement can really ultimately distract us from that. And no matter how much those distractions call out to us, peace, peace, as Ezekiel and Jeremiah remind us, we know better, there is no peace. This is the world in which we're living. We like to decorate it up with streaming services and vacations and going out to eat at restaurants, but that's just all a distraction from the way things actually are. A world under the curse of sin, under the power of death. And the God of this world, as Paul calls Him, in the epistles, the adversary, the enemy, is the cruelest taskmaster and ruler and tyrant of them all. But in the middle of this, in the middle of all the inescapable chaos and confusion and conflict, we see one more thing. We see a humble king riding on a lowly steed into his city. And He's not coming to usher in a new regime of terror. He's coming instead to build a kingdom of peace. And that's what today really is all about Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, as you well know, is is the Sunday before Easter. It's the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. And it's one of the major holidays that we celebrate in the Christian calendar because it's one of the major life events of Jesus of Nazareth. After all, this is one of the few events that we see it's covered by all four Gospels. And so from our perspective, this seems to be the logical conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry. So think with me for a second as, uh, of the Gospel stories. We, for three years, have, have watched Jesus roam the land, healing incurable ailments, casting out inexorable demons. We've seen Him show otherworldly wisdom in His teaching. And He's offered hope to those that have had no 
fellowship and, and the presence of His company. He's forgiven sins. He's raised the dead. And so He's shown Himself not only to be the perfect rabbi, but He's shown Himself to be God's own man sent from heaven above. But beyond that, the people who He's ministering to, the people whose knees have buckled under centuries of oppression, brutal empire after brutal empire, they recognize in this moment that there's something different about Jesus. He's not your average preacher. He's not your regular run-of-the-mill prophet. Wait. Could it be? They ask themselves. Could this be the prophesied Messiah? Could this be the long-awaited Christ? Could Jesus really be the prophet that is said to be greater than Moses and Elijah? Could He be the true heir of David? Is this the one that Isaiah and Zechariah predicted? Dare we hope? Dare we believe it? Is this truly God's anointed here today in our presence? Well, that's what this bustling crowd seems to think. And as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, Israel's capital, a place, by the way, which means a city of peace, they think, indeed, that after countless wars and battles and this city that has not known peace, they think, finally, the King has come to establish His rule to usher in a new age of peace. But what they expect and what God is really up to are two different things. And I think that's true for us too, if we're very, if we're very honest with ourselves. We so often think what our current moment needs is if only this political party were in charge. If only these policies and laws were enacted. If only the culture were this way or that way. We think that's the kind of thing that we need. Oh, how forgetful we are that nothing we've ever done as the human race has brought us true peace. And how silly we are to think that suddenly, after millennia of violence and destruction, how silly we are to think that anything we could ever do would bring lasting peace. But here's the divine irony in in the midst of all of this. In the middle of both our and Israel's failure to really understand the Messiah, He ushers in a kind of peace for us that we never really knew that we needed. So let's see how by looking at our passage together this morning. Look with me at John 12, verses 12-16. through Now notice that from the top here, we're starting off in the middle of this, in the middle of a story. Because verse 12 reads, the next day, implying that, well, there's an event that's happened before. So what has come before this? Well, Jesus has just accomplished his most amazing sign of all. You'll remember in the Gospel of John, there are said to be seven signs that Jesus performs that prove he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And here's the seventh sign, the most wonderful of them all. He has defeated death itself. He's raised His friend Lazarus from the dead. 
not resuscitate him with electric paddles, not to jab a, a shot of adrenaline into his heart. Lazarus has been dead for days. He's buried. He's been wrapped up, mummified in a tomb. And Jesus arrives on the scene days after His death and says, Lazarus, come forth. And He does. And so, while the response from many is astonishment, and from some belief, for Jesus' religious enemies, for His rivals, this is the straw that, ba- that breaks the camel's back. Here the various factions of Israel's religion, whether political or, or, or religious or cultural, whatever institutions they're in charge of, they agree together Jesus has got to go. In fact, we read, they, they say this, if we let Him go on like this, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So let's put that in terms we can understand. What they're fearful of in the face of these heavenly miracles that could only be performed by God, they worry about their pride and their power. The Lord God is undoing the curse of death in their midst and they're afraid they're not going to be the most popular people around anymore. They're blinded by their traditions, and so they conspire to do the unthinkable. They conspire to kill this Jesus. Now, it's easy for us to stand back and sit in judgment of the Sanhedrin, but I can't help but see myself in them. I can't help but see us indicted in their wicked, corrupt hearts. Because we, like them, so often, especially here in this country, that have been so afforded privileges and freedoms and liberties, we so often want to focus on worldly power. We want to see the church be a, a, a dominant cultural institution that puts all, other, all others to shame. We want to see worldly power in the church and forgo heavenly provision. How flustered we get as self-professed adopted children of God the Father. How flustered we get about who's in the White House or who's on the Supreme Court or who's in the Governor's Mansion all the while forgetting who sits above all of them in the throne of heaven. We get so wrapped up in political battles and culture wars as evangelicals, that we forget that Christ even now is building His kingdom not through Hollywood or Wall Street or Washington, D.C., but through His church. As pitiful and pathetic as we are. As disobedient and disbelieving as we are. See, we're like Israel and Rome in that day so often. We can't fathom that God is actually at work in this world. That He's at work in this world in His own way. That it's not our way. That's not our, uh, our violence or our deceptions that we've become so accustomed to in our sinful human hearts and our corrupt human systems. See, we, we want to play the world's game. 
where we bribe and cheat and steal and lie our way into relevance. But that's not the kingdom that this king has come to set up. Nevertheless, some are temporarily, anyways, very hopeful in Jesus' arrival. We read in the second part of verse 12 that this large crowd has arrived to Jerusalem for the annual observance of Passover and then on into the festival of unleavened bread. Now, we know a little bit about that because we've been in the book of Exodus. This is the foundational event of Jerusalem's life, of Israel's life. They remember before they were anything, when they were just a a bunch of disparate clans and tribes of slave people, the Lord intervened. He passed over them in mercy and brought judgment to their oppressors. He freed them and liberated them from slavery and brought them into a land where He fed them and gave them their every provision. This is their great national holiday, Passover. And so we see, uh, although they've been scattered over the years, so many of them are coming back to their capital to, to celebrate what God has done in their past. Hoping for what God may do in their future. And lo and behold, after they've heard about Jesus who is who has raised somebody from the dead, they hear that He too now is coming into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And they realize something special, something powerful must be happening. Perhaps Jesus is coming to do an even greater miracle than raise the dead. Perhaps He is coming now to take control of Jerusalem. To to liberate Israel, to kick out the Roman Empire and establish an ideal Judea. And so they respond with signs befitting of a king coming into his capital victoriously. They gather palm branches, like we saw our children do this morning, and they wave them about victoriously. This is a, a Jewish national symbol of victory. It's reminiscent of the house of David and the palm branches that are written about in his psalms. It'd be like us collectively traveling up to Washington, D.C. on on July the 4th. And we're all waving the stars and the stripes as as bald eagles just fly over us. And the the blue angels fly in the other direction. And and, and the, the president comes out to the National Mall to speak. And the president's name is... Lincoln Washington Jr. And he, and he comes out there and gives this great speech and, and the, there's a 21-gun salute and everything. And it's, it's the ideal environment. It's the most American scene imaginable. The people are responding like that. These people are consider themselves patriots and here is their ideal king. And furthermore, if it's not just what's been happening that's got them excited, they have scriptural warrant to think, here comes our manifest destiny. From our own call to worship, read so beautifully this morning, Psalm 118, they shout to Him while waving these palm branches, these symbols of victory. They say, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Hosanna is an Aramaic word. Aramaic is just the common uh, language of Jesus' people in that day. It means, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. 
So in their own common vernacular, ecstatically waving this national symbol of victory with tears of joy streaming down their face, they quote a hymn that is traditionally sung by the the great temple choirs during Passover from the Hallel, Psalms 113-118. through Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. This crowd is absolutely exploding with anticipation. It reminds me in, in 2015 when for part of uh, my seminary credentials, I had to spend part of a summer at least in, in Boston. Maybe some of you remember that. Um, I had spent part of a summer in Boston with some fellow seminarians on what was called a ministry practicum. So we went up to the Boston area, and we worked with some Presbyterian church planners. And we learned from the pastors there and their churches in, in cities like Cambridge and Quincy and Newton and Somerville. And I'll never forget, on a beautiful, um, warm but not hot, uh, breezy but not too windy, July 4th, that we went to the, the Charles River And we were just a few in a crowd of tens of thousands of people. And, and, you know, this is, this is a a crowd that's building towards anticipation. And on top of that, I think the, the Red Sox were on a winning streak. The U.S. women's soccer team had just won the world championship. And, we're in one of the oldest and most American cities in the country. And, and it, the, the sun starts to set and it starts to get dark outside. And then all of a sudden, I don't know where the speakers were, but speakers on both sides of the river crank up Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline, a Boston anthem. And you talk about a city going crazy. Everybody starts singing and cheering and applauding and, and just as the song crescendos, boom, fireworks go up. I, I thought we were going to tear the city apart just through sheer ecstasy. It was one of the most electric environments that I had ever been in. And that, I think, is what the people in Jerusalem are feeling at this moment. Like they could conquer the world. Like all of their hopes and dreams and wishes are coming true in this singular event. Jesus is about to be crowned King of Israel, coming in the name of the Lord. And we read in verse 14 that Jesus was riding on a young donkey into Jerusalem. And this activates the imaginations of these careful Scripture readers. And it takes them all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 49 a dying Jacob is prophesying over his twelve sons, and he comes to Judah. Judah, who's lecherous, nasty man that he was, but who had grown and matured and repented in his later life. He comes to Judah, from whom Jesus descends. And he says this, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hands will be on the necks of your enemies and your father's sons will bow down to you. And then a little later on, he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes 
and the obedience of the peoples belong to Him. Somebody like that comes from the line of Judah. And then we read, He ties His donkey to a vine and the colt of His donkey to the choice vine. And He washes His clothes in wine and His robes in the blood of grapes. They've got that going on in their brain. Here's a mighty king, a victorious king from the line of Judah that's come to put all under subjection to himself. And therefore, John reminds us that as Isaiah also writes, Zion, herald of good news, Zion being another name for Israel, or uh, for Jerusalem, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly, raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength and His power establishes His rule. His wages are with Him and His reward accompanies Him. And then from our Old Testament reading this morning, from Zechariah, he confirms all of this and says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your King is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Everything that's happening here seems to be happening just as the Scriptures foretold. All of these portraits across the centuries point us to one messianic hope, one Savior to whom we cry out, Hosanna! Save us! And all of this fervor in the crowd thrills us with hope that this Jesus is indeed the King, victorious and righteous, praised and bringing the good news of His kingdom. And yet, and yet, despite all of this, the Apostle John brings us back down to earth. He grounds us in reality. In verse 16, it reads this, His disciples did not understand these things. His disciples didn't get it. Now wait a minute. What's not to get? How's this possible? It seems like everyone in this crowd does get it. They actually believe that these Scriptures are about Jesus. That He's coming to be their King. How do they not understand these things? Well, as it turns out, they don't understand how, how Jesus comes to be crowned king. They understand it's Jesus that is coming in the place of this Messiah, but they don't understand how He's about to do this. Because what they expect, and what we so often expect, is that Christ will ride in to establish a purely militaristic empire. That He'll operate according to our rules, the rules of this world under the curse of sin, that He'll establish His might and power and crush anybody that irritates us and we'll be able to lord over them our success. They expect Jesus to rally the troops to grab their swords and their guns and to go out into the streets and, and for Him to command the slaughter of the infidels. To, to, to rouse out every pagan and heathen from the street, or, or maybe to shackle their necks and their hands, and, and especially of the Roman overlords, and put them into 
humiliation of slavery. Or maybe perhaps Jesus is coming to bring a war of ethnic and religious and economic cleansing. But in thinking this way, we miss a crucial detail of what the Scriptures told us of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Zechariah tells us He comes humbly. Jesus rides into the city of peace not proudly on a white war horse. He comes humbly on a beast of burden. On a colt. Perhaps we've interpreted the meaning of these Scriptures all along incorrectly. What if the blood that we see on His clothing in in Genesis 49, and I think again we see that in, I believe it's Revelation 19, the blood on the the clothing of, of the King of Israel is not the blood of His enemies. But what if it's His very own blood spilt for us? What if the the blood of the grapes that we drink is is not a cup we hold proud over our enemies, but it's a cup of sacrifice that the Lord's veins filled up for us to drink and to live? What if we do that, not in remembrance of us, but in remembrance of Him? And what if the good news that's announced in Isaiah, the herald that announces, here is your God coming in strength and power. What if the strength He's coming in is the strength of His humility? And the power He's coming in is not the power of the sword, but the power of His forgiveness and His love. Of His being God and yet man crucified for sinners. The wages that are with Him we read about, that Isaiah writes about, what if those wages are the wages of our sin? That sin that He bears on His shoulders so that we might gain and exchange His eternal inheritance. His eternal reward. And what if Zechariah is calling us to rejoice, to shout in triumph, not because the King of creation has come to destroy our enemies or destroy us, but He has come to be destroyed for us instead. That when we sing Hosanna, Lord save us, He does just that. Not by the strength of His military, not by the genius of His economy, not by the beauty of His culture, but through the astonishing love of God for undeserving and suffering sinners. See, John tells us that only when Jesus was glorified, only when He had been abandoned by His friends and His disciples, Only when these people that came waving palms and and singing joyfully about His coming have turned on Him and said, kill Him. Only after He has been stripped naked and beat to a bloody pulp and abandoned and mocked by the church and the state 
and everyone in between only once that had happened. And he was buried and dead for three days. Only once he was glorified, when when the Father by the Spirit raised him from the dead, and he ascended back into the presence, only then could his followers remember that these things had been written about him. Not the way they expected. Not the way that we so often hope. And indeed, more than that, that these things had not only been written about him, but that they had done these things to him. Friends, I don't know all the battles that you faced this week. Nor do I know all the battles that you will face in the coming week. I know perhaps a fraction of what weighs you down as you stumble into church this morning. I know some of your sorrows and troubles. And I know in part how I can pray for you. But I don't know all of it. Nor do I even know most of it. But what I do know is what I have that I can give you. Nothing I can give you from my wisdom or my wealth. But what I do have, I share with you. And I share with you the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Prince of Peace. See, on a day like today, maybe some of us do feel like waving palm branches and joy and excitement. Maybe life is going swimmingly for us. And we feel like celebrating. It's a good day. Beautiful day outside. Pollen counts a little high, but other than that, it's great. While others of us may feel like it's taking everything in us not to just weep into our hands right now. Maybe some of you feel lifted up and maybe some of you feel down low. Maybe some of you came in smiling and some of you came in barely repressing a sob. Whatever the case for you may be, the response is the same. The Blessed One who comes in the name of the Lord has ridden into your life humbly on a donkey. A beast of burden symbolizing that He came so that you could cast all your heavy cares on Him. We, like the Israelites before us, may be singing Hosanna. Save us! Maybe we're doing that one moment. And the next moment we feel so discouraged by our life that our hearts are all but saying, crucify the next. And while we lift our palm branches in earnest, or maybe in ignorance, what we find is that all the same, He lifts His own palms for us on a rugged cross, willingly taking all of our, all of our sin and sorrow and shame away from us. Taking all of our warring and striving, all of our battles and everything else onto Himself so that by dying in our place and for us, He may bring us lasting peace. And that by rising, no matter what happens to you in this life, no matter what happens, 
that in Him we may rise again in unending life and in everlasting peace. Let's pray. Father, indeed we pray, blessed is He who comes to us in the name of the Lord. And when we desperately plead, Hosanna, save us, You answer our prayers with Yeshua, with Jesus, who saves us from our sins. So help us, Father, to follow Him through this holy week into Your temple and into His upper room out to the garden and up to Golgotha, and finally out from His tomb. Keep us until this King who rode in on His donkey returns again victoriously on His horse. For it's to Him, and by Him, and through Him, and for Him that we pray all these things, both now and forever. Amen.